Burning Man aggressively extends the tradition of hedonic ecstasy, writes Eric Davis. Wild visuals, disorienting sonics, and a self-conscious excess of sensory stimulation. All help undermine stabilized frames. It's a full sensorium brain machine designed to bring us in tune with our mind's ongoing construction of real time on the fly. This is Entheogen, Elevate the Conversation. Today is December 22nd, 2017, and we are discussing part three of Stealing Fire, a book by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Support us on Patreon with a small monthly contribution to help keep the show going. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. And thanks for listening. I'm pretty jealous because you guys are there together in the same room when normally we're all on equal footing in separate places, but... We are unclothed. You are on the same coast this time, Brad. That's true. This is a rarity that we're all in the same time zone. We're, we're as, like in, as close in proximity as we've been since uh, recording live at Burning Man. That's right. Speaking true. of Burning Man. Speaking of, speaking of Burning Man, uh, always a topic that's difficult for us to speak about. Uh, this is. entire oh. chapter of the book is about Burning Man, <laughs> which I think, I think if you're a listener of the show and you've never been to Burning Man, you're probably like, oh, fuck this again. I feel like it's like <laughs> August right now. Like it just, you know, the amount of times you just said Burning Man, it, it definitely seems like we're in mid-August. <laughs> Chapter eight is called Catch a Fire, and it, it talks a ton about Burning Man and sort of its relevance in the world, you know, kind of not just sort of in the counterculture, but I thought there was a good reference where uh, I guess Barack Obama in the White House Correspondence Dinner um said something in reference to Burning Man, and I thought that was a funny little uh, indication of its... And then I thought, like, I wonder if Trump knows what Burning Man is. <laughs> Let's hope not. Right. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's like its days are numbered. Yes. Yeah. By the way, did anybody else, when you read the, 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 uh, the title, like, Catch a Fire, did you not think this was possibly about getting STDs at Burning Man? I thought that <laughs> might, be, it might be the direction the chapter was going in. <laughs> Catch a burning sensation. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, as the book says, if the president of the United States is moved to comment on the event and Elon Musk is claiming it's central to Silicon Valley culture, then perhaps there's more going on than just a week long party. That's uh, I feel like while I was reading the chapter, I'm like, that's that's kind of one of the things I wanted to discuss with you guys is like, you know, obviously there's something going on there that's more than just a week long party. The question is. How many people are involved in that, uh, and then kind of to what degree? And I think you know. And then there's like another question that comes off of that is like, how much is, how how important is Burning Man after Burning Man is over in terms of what it you know means after it's over? And uh, I think you know when you've gone for for several years, um, sometimes you can feel that like, oh, I'm doing, I've done this before, I'm doing it again. Maybe the the degree to which I feel. Um, you know the novelty or like the 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 impact of the change is is different um when you've gone for a few years it almost forces you to like find a way while you're there to get back outside yourself and then you experience it all over again yeah i mean this past year for me was a tough year um unexpectedly like and i think in retrospect it was one of the most memorable and one of the most meaningful years that i've been and it, there, I remember when, when I was in South America looking into ayahuasca opportunities and experiences, there were a few things that I'd hear about the experience uh, from, I think, responsible people trying to sincerely 
prepare me for it. And one of them was the real work is after the ceremony. So sort of trying to make the impression that you're not going to have this experience and then instantly have this transformation happen for you. Um, what that or, and, and in my experience, like what Burning Man has meant to me is, is a place where you can kind of get broken down and sort of get cracked, sort of another allusion to that Cohen quote. But then it's really kind of what you can do with that, how you can take action on it, how you can decide to integrate whatever it is that you learn or, or experience uh, into your, to your life. And I think that's a really, there's nothing else that I really do each year that presents that degree of opportunity um, to sort of get exposed to that. But to your point, Kev, I, I certainly don't think it's something that happens there. I think it's the integration and what you can get out of it is, it's uh, like an active responsibility after. Okay. What do you, what do you think about, um, you know, that's, that's on the individual level. And I think I agree with you hundred percent. And I think sometimes I almost downplay to myself the, the effects that it's, that it's had on me in my life. And then I kind of, when I take the long view back, I, I kind of have like a holy shit realization about like, wow, this has been like in, incredibly impactful in my life. Um, but what do you, what do you think in terms of like on the group level, you know, on like the, in terms of what it means when it's over uh, and what kind of effect it's having as kind of the relationships grow uh, worldwide. I mean, I know we've seen that in our own camp and, you know, we're not putting that to any sort of, uh, maybe apart from this podcast, any sort of like uh, beneficent use. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of people doing that and the relationships are strengthening, the, the kind of the networking is happening afterwards. And it's just um, like just an amazing open source frenzy uh and then i I just i'm just curious as to how that plays out and and if it's as good if it's as big a force for good as i hope it is yeah i don't know that i it's i think that's much more debatable and i certainly don't have a strong uh, opinion i think some of the good examples maybe are like uh uh what is it burners without borders yeah you know people who have like really kind of taken what they learned through these experience and really applied it in very pro-social proactive ways. And then there are other certain organizational spinoffs like black rock solar, um, and, and things like that, where that, I guess that's where my mind goes first in, t- in terms of how the rest of the world is being impacted by something that started with this Baker beach, then Nevada desert experience. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the evolution of the, uh, uh, you know, of Burning Man uh, as a cultural phenomenon and how, you know, it, it, it's 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 hard to, like, see how that could have happened deliberately. It's it's not like it's, you know, programmed into the design of the event from the beginning or anything like that. It kind of just was like a, you know, series of probably like, you know, lucky accidents in, uh, you know, drawing the right people to it and those people being interested in, in uh, using it as a transformative experience as time went on. But, um, and, you know, there are some specific examples to point to, like you mentioned, BlackRock Solar, uh, Burners Without Borders, but um, it's also about the individuals and the smaller, you know, communities within the larger community who go back and, um, I, like, I have some, some friends I brought who uh, hug more now. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they specifically mentioned that they, they got into town after Burning Man and they, uh, you know, and these were not people who were like cold or 
uh, you know, who were, um, you know, aloof or uh, lacked warmth in general and, you know, would avoid, you know, hugging people or anything like that. But it just was like something they would deliberately do now um, as a way of spreading, um, you know, something that they gained from Burning Man back into their community back home. And it's, it happens to be a community largely uh, devoid of other uh, burners, you know. So I think that there there is a broader cultural you know, impact that Burning Man's having, it just might be a little bit hard to put put your finger to, on to it. measure. I was <laughs> real quick. I had a vision when you when you said that because I misheard Hugmore, and I thought of a future where there's a mountain somewhere in Central America with the faces carved out from our psychedelic leaders, and we can call it Mount Hugmore. <laughs> I like that. I was also laughing while Joe was uh, was saying that that not what he was saying, just just imagining like whenever you have to explain Burning Man to sort of like a, a disbeliever or somebody who, who wouldn't particularly be interested in the first place. Like I was imagining like my father, like trying to dispel my father's, um, you know, just total disbelief in Burning Man and everything else by telling him like, no, but dad really, since I've been going, I just hug a lot more. You know, it's right. just <laughs> like, it's not, it's not a hippie thing though. Yeah. I just like to hug people now. Right. You know? right. Like it's, yeah. It's, it's very cliche really. Yeah. You know? but, totally. I mean, no, but I, but I agree with you on that level. Like that, that's one thing uh, that, that I, I noticed too, is just a little bit more like physical contact with people and like less, you know, squeamish about that. But then you get into other things too. It's like the whole kind of, I think the way our camp is organized, um, even though it's not like, um, you know, completely hive mind leaderless. It does have like some aspects of that. And I think that for me is something that I've, uh, that comes from Burning Man down. That's sort of like, you know, everyone participating, uh, generating ideas, contributing voluntarily. And that's something I've tried to take into like other projects I've done in my life and kind of model them on that instead of the traditional hierarchies that, you know, we kind of grew up with and were come down from the institutions. And I think that's also something they touch on a lot. And in the book is sort of it's uh, giving us like new ways of uh, organizing ourselves and also, uh, you know, just generating ideas and, and like value within a group of people. It's a place in which you can experiment with these different ways of interacting, and it may be artificial in a lot of ways. Like you don't have, um, uh, you know, you have a lack of commerce. I mean, that's how does that translate into like the the real world? Um, you have a lack of a real like authoritative um, infrastructure, uh, at least like one that it's not it's not strongly imposed from on high, and um, so it's it, it's it's a bit. Um, it's a bit hard to translate that into, you know, back into the society at large, but at the same time, to have these experiences in like a limited fashion, uh, you can more easily take, uh, you, you know, you can have those experiences and then maybe think about how to apply them to the broader, um, you know, uh, reality. Joe mentioned the, like the series of lucky accidents. I also think that like them having to move out to the desert is just an unbelievable lucky accident because I, I think that probably no one ever planned for that aspect and I think it's fundamental in the whole thing. It's like A, it gives you kind of that island protection from, um, you know, just the masses and uh, you kind of have to really want to get there to get there. But apart right. from that, like the physical environment being so hard on right. you is part of that like breaking down your your normal structures and, you know, tearing away a little bit at, at all your comfort. Yeah. Uh, and that's that, even though you may be you know, resentful of it at times during the week. Uh, I think it plays plays big into like the health, the the self growth part. 
Well, there's, there, it would be hard to achieve that sort of like filter any other way. You know, the remoteness of it means you have to really work hard to get there. The, you know, the, the desert environment you have to really plan for. Um, you have to, it's it, like, it's a very intentional community in that sense. Like it's a very, you know, the people who are there are there on purpose and very deliberately, um, which brings a lot of like, I don't know, positive energy to use kind of like a woo-woo term on it. Um, like everyone who's there really has an intention of being there and really wants to be there and is probably there for the right reasons. You know, you don't overcome those obstacles in a frivolous uh, way. Um, and it's hard, it would be hard to do that any other way. I mean, other festivals maybe charge, you know, uh, it, like you, maybe you charge higher uh, ticket prices um, yeah, and just, that's the filter. Yeah, you know? until then, you meet like the, the supply and the demand, that. like peter out. Right, yeah. and <laughs> you know that would be you know that would select a, you know like the top you know level of wealth. It wouldn't it wouldn't select people who really want to be there just independently of, of any other uh, you know financial resources. So um, yeah, I mean I think it's like it is really lucky that it ends up taking place in this remote you know desert wilderness basically. It is so uh, I've talked to a lot of people about how it's it's completely illogical to spend seven to 10 or 14 or however long you go to spend that amount of time in such an inhospitable environment. Yeah. And the level of preparation required, um, it, it I think you said it well, Joe, it, it cultivates an intentional uh, community for sure. So I don't know, Kevin, going back to your question, it's a great question. I'm, I, I don't know. I'd like to have this conversation more with, with other folks around what, what the impact is on on a more global scale and in you know kind of bringing it back to the book a little bit they talk a lot about burning man throughout the book in this particular chapter and there's also toward the end of the chapter uh they mention another uh kind of event that started with a ski trip and they call it summit series and did you guys read about do you recall what that part it's kind of more around um, less around the, the festival and the party and more around bringing kind of industry leaders together and, in an environment where there's there's no hierarchy, it's non-structured, it, it just gives people a chance to, mm-hmm. I don't know, like get together and mingle. I don't know kind of what they do. I've never been to something like this, but uh, but like I, I'm talking about like the likes of like Richard Branson and... Kobe and, Bryant. Yeah, like... It's it's fascinating that you know even if it's not something as relatively accessible as Burning Man that there are other there the, those sort of tenants those ideas are turning into themes of other gatherings and you know how how is that impacting you know things at large? Well, sure, it also seems to come up um, in all the kind of like self help guru circles, uh, you know. How mindfulness and meditation have made their way so you know they've basically become fixtures in all those movements and then I think there's not such a great leap from those things to um, you know some of the concepts in this book and then also psychedelics as well um, and, I, and I like at the um, at the end of the chapter uh, about this he they say um, that they would consider this moment uh, a great awakening in its own right and then I think in U.S. history, there have been two great awakenings, right? And they've both been spiritual great awakenings, times of great religious fervor. And uh, he, he says, you know, this time the the mythical has been replaced by the empirical. So this mm. is like kind of a third great awakening based on actual experience uh, that people are having instead of, uh, you know, based on, I don't know, scripture or dogma or, or any, well, anything similar. 
Yeah, at the same time, it's, it's really interesting to me that a lot of the approaches are extremely pragmatic in a sense. Like, uh, you know, Summit Series, you know, you get together and, uh, you know, people, I, I mean, like, like you said, Brad, I'm not really exactly sure what the circumstances are, but it seems like it's a group of people that... Uh, Amphigen Road Trip. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we definitely <laughs> need to check it out. Um, you know, but they get together and ideas come out of it. You know, they get together and they talk and they're, they're you know, and they might attend a, a talk or... Um, the, the example of Richard Branson at his, uh, you know, private Necker Island house and, uh, you know, they, they, they hang out in the hot tub and basically soak, talk and gaze at the stars as they describe in the book. And it was at one of those late night gatherings that he birthed his virgin galactic idea. And, you know, Branson's a water birth. Right, exactly. It's a water birth through, through his brain into the hot tub and uh, up into the sky. And he, you know, he says, um, you know, NASA hadn't yet created a spaceship I could fly on, and if I waited too long, I wouldn't be around. So I thought, let's build our own. I mean, who in their right mind wouldn't look up at those stars and not dream of going there? You know, it's just a very pragmatic scenario. Like, you're sitting in a hot tub, you're hanging out with your friends, and you look up at the stars and you think, now, you, you, know, you, have, to, you have to be a billionaire. You have to be, be Richard Branson to right? do this, right? But, you know, you look up at the stars and you think, let's, let's do it. Um, so it's just, it's like, if you get people back to their fundamental, just like, interactions and relaxation, um, you know, again, remember the book is all about the flow state. I think it's, it's a really pragmatic approach to just kind of hang out and relax and that can put you in a flow state. But the reason that's interesting and unique is that most people spend every day in a really programmed, uh, you know, way like, you know, and it's not a ritualized thing. It's like a, um, it's a, it's a routine that people have that is not deliberate like people get up and look at their phone and they you know they they have to get ready for work and they have to sit in traffic and they have to go to work and you know their mind is on their cost of their health care and their uh you know different you know items on their to-do list and things and people don't have the luxury to like think broadly and just kind of relax and you end up having that ability when you have an experience like burning man or you know, if you happen to be a billionaire in <laughs> yeah, a billionaire, hot tub. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, well, not even a billionaire, like that type of billionaire, right? Because, like, I'm sure Hugh Hefner was sitting in a, in a few hot tubs in his days thinking things like he wanted to mar <laughs> marry twins, right? <laughs> you know, like, I guess you have to be a high-minded billionaire. <laughs> well, the, the, the pragmatism and the mindfulness, there's some cool uh, quotes toward the end of the chapter, chapter 8, um, talking about sort of what effect this has had. Um, so I just want to read a quick paragraph. It says, 18 million Americans now have a regular practice, talking about mindfulness or maybe meditation. Um, and by the end of 2017, 44% of all U.S. companies will, will offer mindfulness training to employees. Since rolling out their program, Aetna estimates that it saved $2,000 per employee in healthcare costs and gained $3,000 per employee in productivity. This quantifiable return on investment helps explain why meditation and mindfulness uh the industry grew to nearly one billion dollars in 2015 that's wacky that is pretty yeah. that's pretty serious and there's another cool quote about yoga um that i highlighted it says consider yoga the 5,000 year old tradition was a countercultural pastime until the 1990s but once research began finding the practice did everything from improved cognitive function to decrease blood pressure the general public started to cross the chasm as of uh, 2015, some 36 million Americans have a regular practice. 
an activity that changes our state of mind by changing the shape of our bodies has be, uh, has become more popular in terms of participation than football. That's pretty wild. That, like comparing it to participation participation numbers in football is pretty funny. Imagine <laughs> like like a whole bunch of yogis getting together. Like I don't know what's the yoga equivalent of the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> a great stretch. Ah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh. Is there like a puppy bowl version of it? <laughs> right. Yeah, it reminds me of um, something that uh, Rick Doblin had pointed out about how, you know, the fact that these things are more accepted, mindfulness and yoga, uh, you know, in, in recent years is a really good sign for the broader, you know, our, our pet uh, topic of psychedelics and psychedelic therapy and um, just the normalization of these things because, you know, if if uh, we base this on a substrate of acceptance for these, you know, what used to be countercultural activities, you know, yoga and people kind of scoffing at, you know, the, the weird hippies who do yoga and, you know, some, somebody who meditates might be a little bit, you know, woo-woo for, for people. Um, you know, these days it's much more accepted. Um, I remember the, the first time um, I talked to a uh, an electrician I had doing some work at my house who you know, I don't know why, but he, the topic of meditation came up and, you know, he mentioned he'd been meditating every day. And, and I'm like, you're an electrician. Like that doesn't fit my concept Only of freaks meditate, man. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. you know, it just, it, like, in other words, it's like a normal person. It's like a guy with a job, you know, and he like, you know, he meditates and it just, it impressed me that, um, it, it is so mainstream. I mean, this was, this was probably 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, well, if we want to steer it towards the more bleak, um, <laughs> There's one part that is also kind of timely right now with all the net neutrality repealing bullshit that's happening in legislature. Yeah. Toward the beginning of chapter nine, the it talks about this guy, a Columbia Law School professor, Tim Wu, uh, in 2010 wrote a paper where he talks about how information technologies uh, ranging from telegraph to radio, movies, and ultimately the internet tend to behave in similar ways starting out utopian and democratic and ending up centralized and hegemonic hmm. fuck we're on we're on the path i know it's pretty ugh, i hate the, the how how yeah. right how true that feels yeah it also it also like when uh when i'm reading that it may, it, it just you know try to you try to keep uh your mind on both sides of the argument and so it's like they talk about how when john Lilly started his uh experiments um basically like very quickly the, the government came knocking on the door uh, want, wanting to know exactly how you know how everything worked that he was doing, and, and obviously with an eye towards using it as a weapon, um, and and that kind of need to weaponize uh, for fear of the enemy. Uh, it's it's like ba balancing that. Like, what's the proper degree to which the government should be uh, use, like discovering weapons or or, or some sort of uh, technology for defense or offense in certain cases, but uh, but for defense, where 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 is where is the line on that? You know what I mean? I mean in the case you're talking about, Brad, it's not um, you know it's it's a different story with net neutrality, obviously, but uh, in, in in these cases where you have technologies or things that that come up and then they're immediately sought after as weapons. It's it's shocking to us, but then later, you know, we don't work on the government side of things where, you know, I, I have no idea what the CIA knows that Russia is doing right now that we need to be ahead of. Right. So, like, you know, I don't feel as free to 
to comment on it. However, when it comes to things that concern you know more the, the general public, what's happening right now here with net neutrality and probably many other things in the next three years is quite scary. Yeah. Do you do you guys tend to be more um, consequentialists or intentionalists? As in, do you feel like kind of the end justifies the mean sort of mentality, or do you feel like uh, that w the reason why people do things is more relevant or more important? Yeah, I think I think in, in my own life I would I, I side on the uh, on the side of attention of, of intention, but um, I think that if you work in the CIA or defense in some way, that you that that's probably not a good argument. Well, I mean, look at like just look at the um, you know the the way that we deal with like uh, massive uh, powers in on a global scale. Um, you know, how do we mitigate like any one country becoming too powerful? We have the concept of mutually assured destruction. Is that yeah. the best we can do? Yeah. You know, like anytime a technology is discovered, our best hope at like mitigating its, you know, the risk is like we need to, you know, get there first. Um, and like because, you know, it's assumed that we're all trying to kill each other all the yeah, time. It's the prisoner's dilemma, you know? right? It's like like I mean so how do you how do you shift um you know I, I guess it's to your question Brad like I mean maybe um there's there's a human psychological aspect to this where I mean we really need to have like a massive shift of mindset like all at once yeah. in order to break this cycle don't we is that that's no, the thing they need to have the <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> We just need to talk to Putin, and then everything will be okay. Right. I mean, oh, let's gosh. put let's like put our weapons down, like on the count of three. You yeah. Know? But yeah, like somebody, know, but, yeah, you know, but you 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 never quite like trust that the other person's gonna like hold up their end of the bargain. It's a funny kind of organism, the way that that like the powers to be and and reactionism and the the ideas of powers thinking of defense. There's another. There's a great part in chapter nine that talks about just how exactly Ken Kesey found all that LSD yeah. <laughs> and how this was all something that had to do with a defense spirited um, CIA endeavor, you know, MK ultra. And, you know, he, he's was volunteering at a VA hospital and apparently unbeknownst to a lot of the people who worked in the hospital, that MK ultra program is going on. And so he was. It was while he was just kind of volunteering at the the VA hospital that he stumbled on this. Um, it was like a session experiments that the doctors were running, and voila, like yeah. the sixties. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They basically unleashed the sixties, right? But yeah, that that one was. Uh, it made me think of uh, Snowden a little bit while I was reading that too, because it talks about mm. kind of the, the the it's like bi-directional, right? It's usually like the movement can come from the people and then the government co-ops it and, and sort of use it against them or it happens in reverse. And uh, it sort of made me, yeah, I think of Snowden sort of what, you know, what people learned once he opened uh, the, the Pandora's box of uh, all sorts of technology and, and uh, interesting uh, CIA programs that uh, no one had any idea existed, or NSA in this case. Another on the side of the, the more bleak aspects of the book is there's a section of the book called Soma, Delicious Soma, and it kind of talks about there's a conversation I've had for years about you know the 1984 versus um, mm -hmm. 
versus uh, Huxley. Uh, God, what's the name of Huxley's Brave, Brave New World? Yeah. Thank you. Um, 84 versus Brave New World sort of depiction of the dystopic future. And there's it, it explains pretty elegantly in the book about how, you know, the, the same kind of brain chemistry, you know, neural circuitry is related to God, related to sacred iconography are things that people who are selling us shit have like learned how to tap into yeah and as well as the pleasure the pleasure circuit right yeah 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 and so like the whole idea of advertising and what it's turned into and marketing really more generally and and it's i don't know it's kind of spooky i'm like i'm i'm really on not a friend of social media the past few months and in things that I've been reading and sort of like learning about how if you can if you can divide a people 50-50 on pretty much every issue it means that you can market to the fringes and that your market share ends up becoming 100%. You know, if most people kind of fall in the middle, the people on the fringes are those that you can market whatever to effectively and if you can somehow Devise people 50 50 down the middle on everything it means that you've increased your market share to 100% because you've pushed every like everybody down the middle on everything and it just it's like my new thing that wakes me up in the middle of the night and I don't know I haven't been on Facebook in months and I just have become way more aware and intentional about sources of information and and what how I'm spending my time and energy and like what I'm reading and I don't know stuff like that, but this this part of the book sort of reminded me of that. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, question. I've been grappling with that a little bit too. Just thinking about uh, the current state of politics in in the U.S. is uh, just really freaking weird. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, it's it's about it, it's it. I mean, I was going to say it's about as bad as it could possibly get, but that's you know, I've, I've said that before. Yeah. Um, and yeah, well, you know, we're also not at civil war, which is you know. Well, it's true. I mean, I, I <laughs> it just could get a lot bad. worse, Joe. Like I, ideologically, <laughs> look on the bright side. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly right. The the idea that like some people have functioning cognition and like probably a lot of people don't. Like, it just seems like a lot of people um, are programmed by mass media just from in a, in a really pure like top-down way and brad you know that's one way that is really effective is facebook i mean the sensational you know articles about everything and yeah. it, you know it's pro or con and it, it you know it's yeah but again I, like i always go back to the you know you, you we can't you can't regulate those things for people it's like the only hope ever is that like people will inform themselves and like you said use their cognition like if you're if you're reading an article with some of the headlines that these articles have like you should know by the third word that this is not this is not real or this is not an objective article but i don't think the article is the problem i think it's the person who just really wants to read that like it's a it's they want to read their own opinion and they want to be inflamed and they want to be you know mad about everything and uh, i don't i i i mean i hear where you're coming from but i think i think there is something more macro at work at that's happening here that I think can be addressed. And the thing that that kind of sent me off on the spiral was it was in the wake of the the Las Vegas shooting, um, you know, in the wake of so many mass shootings over the past couple of years and few years. And and it it was a chart that was showing over the past twenty years up, up the opinion polls, like sort of two different opinion polls, one and one seemingly opposite. One of them was, do you feel like 
gun control is an important thing in our world and in society. And roughly 20, 25 years ago, it was about 65% of people felt that gun control was valuable and important and should be a thing. And then conversely, the opinion of, you know, unfettered access to weapons is important and gun ownership is really important. And that was like about 30%. And what the chart showed is that over the past 20 years, those two opinions have converged and that over the past few years, there have been two points in particular where they had very steep points of converging toward one another. And obviously, statistically speaking, correlation doesn't equal causation. But, I mean, the first major point of the opinion sort of like going toward 50-50 was when uh, 24-hour cable news sort of became a thing. So CNN, Fox News, like the idea of media... And journalism had a huge shift when uh, kind of consumer-based cable news became a thing. And then the second major shift, and really this was the thing that took those opinions and brought them to like 50-50. And for the past 10 years, they've both been hovering 50-50 consistently was when Facebook came out. And it's it's crazy, man. It's like the cable news is one thing facebook's the next step of it there's a lot of things in social media that are very systematically designed to divide people like 50 50 on as much as they can no it's a really interesting concept i mean you know like united we're much stronger than we are divided and it kind of makes sense that dividing the masses is a pretty effective way of uh, controlling the masses you know yeah. um, i mean not to be you know a conspiracy theorist although uh Apparently that word was invented by the CIA, which I think is a really interesting <laughs> <laughs> meta commentary on that. Um, but yeah, no, really, I mean, did, like, did you read if, that on Facebook? You know, yeah, exactly. Right. I'll, link, I'll send you the link. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's like it. Uh, I I do think that um, if if somebody you know is pulling the strings, and I don't think it's like a vast un un uh, you know um, misunderstood. Uh, you know conspiracy so to speak i think it's literally just the people that have all the money just want to keep all the money and keep all the power like it's yeah. pretty obvious well, you know? it just keeps consolidating right yeah i also i got a kick out of uh when they mention uh john Lilly and sort of the experiments he he took up early in his career there's a point where he was um s sending electrical impulses into the brain and he could basically stimulate the pleasure circuitry and when he was doing this in monkeys they would just it just it would stimulate their, their their erotic circuitry which he says is linked to your your ecstatic uh circuitry and so the monkeys would just masturbate non-stop <laughs> which in and of itself is a funny image but um <laughs> but i just got a kick out of that like that <laughs> that idea and i'm like that's that's what all of this stuff is just trying to turn us into it's just a bunch of masturbating monkeys you know what i mean it's like between uh between like the the prevalence of free pornography the the facebook dopamine response and uh and just just everywhere you look i mean it's just you're, you're, there there's a, a host of uh weapons designed to turn you into a masturbating monkey well, when you say it like that, it doesn't sound so bad. No, no, it doesn't. See, you'd sign up, right? <laughs> Brad's getting back on Facebook right now. <laughs> and the last chapter in the book before the, the conclusion, so chapters eight and nine are, I don't know, in my view, kind of wraps up sort of the content of the book. And then the last chapter, it's called Hedonic Engineering. And I think this is sort of the author's attempt at 
you know, feeling like if, if you've read the book and you've enjoyed it and it's been interesting, you've had a lot of, you've wanted to have a podcast, if you dedicate a few episodes of your podcast with your friends to talk about it, it sort of ends in a action oriented way and like suggesting some, some ways that you can actually implement these things in a meaningful way. And so, you know, some of it I thought was pretty cool. Some of it felt a little prescriptive, like overly prescriptive. Um, but one of the things that kind of stood out to me was it suggested that one, it suggested you, you, you do these things. You like, you basically explored altered states and do what you enjoy doing and don't shy away from them. Don't feel guilty about them. Don't, um, you know, avoid doing them, but to try to be in, intentional and think through what you're doing and why and how often you do them. And one thing in particular, they, they sort of suggested that once one month a year for like, uh, a period of like 30 days or more to take a break from all of those things. That is a great, uh, that is a great method. And, uh, something I, before reading the book, I kind of practiced yearly. I would always give one thing up every year for like a month or two. And I always found it to be a really nice, uh, change, like give up coffee for a month or give up whatever it is, you know, it's just nice to take a break from anything. Yeah. And the idea is it's, I mean, it's kind of, it, it, it's Lent, right? You know, it's, it's give yeah. up the things that you, that you do and the idea. And so you try, you're trying new things all the time. And if you're forming patterns, particularly with things that are about altered states, you know, your neuro neurological makeup can, you know, create grooves and you can have patterns and quickly, you know, certain behaviors and things can become addicting. So they're suggesting this as a way to like kind of check yourself in the face of, um, possible new addictive activities to take a month off each year and then use that time to introspect and evaluate like what are you missing the most and why like are you feel out of sorts do you feel more clear-headed like get a sense of what's serving you in the in the most effective ways which I thought was pretty pretty cool suggestion I'm not going to do it but I like it as a suggestion <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a good suggestion for the listeners and, and let us know how that works for you <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> Well, Brad, what you said reminded me of the um, the, the, the Jack Cornfield quote um, mentioned in the book, and I guess it also is appropriate to uh, Kevin's image of a bunch of masturbating monkeys after the ecstasy, the laundry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that quote too. It also reminded me of the idea of, you know, the real work is after the event or after the ceremony. You know, it's like after you had that experience, you know, kind of integrate it or deal with your shit, like live your life, like do the stuff you got to do that's not so exciting and fun but it's you know still part of being a human and functional society right yeah do you want to read that uh, leonard cohen quote which sort of uh touches on that i love that leonard cohen yeah, quote. yeah it's very good uh, in fact the whole last section of the last chapter is called there's a crack in everything uh and there's a few there's a few things that they talk about sort of building up to that that i thought were really great quotes um there's the it talks about in japan that they have the idea the concept of wabi-sabi the ability to find beauty and imperfection so like mm -hmm. if a vase for example is accidentally broken they don't just throw the whole thing away or try to patch it up to hide the accident instead they would take golden glue and painstakingly reassemble it so its unique flaws make the piece more beautiful hmm. yeah that's character yeah, that is uh, that is pretty cool. 
It kind of reminds me of, um, I remember like the first time I saw a Tool concert, um, it, noticing that the visuals are kind of not exactly in sync with the music deliberately. Uh, and they don't, they sort of don't fit in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, you, you sort of expect things to be like highly choreographed in a really deliberate way where, you know, the mm. audio visuals are like part of a, you know, um, like, like, like you expect um, the, the, uh, like a cut, like a visual cut to happen in time with the music, for example, or, um, you know, you expect like the theme of the visuals to match, you know, the lyrics of the, of the song, you know, for example, but um, they don't, they don't do that, or at least they didn't, you know, back then. And it, it so the, the fact that there was like almost not like syncopation, but just like, a you know, the visuals were sort of out of step deliberately with, with the, uh, the music um, added like a almost like a third level of appreciation to it. You know, I'm sure you, you weren't a little out of step at that. Well, moment. I, I probably was. I mean, <laughs> a tool concert is a, <laughs> yeah. a perfect place to have a, an ecstatic experience um, and a spiritual experience for that matter. But you know, but it just uh, I don't know. It reminds me of that concept of like imperfection. Like it shouldn't. You know, the the visual should not necessarily happen in perfect time with the audio. Um, it it's adds a level of interest if things are out of step and out of sync. Hmm. Yeah, and also Brad, it, the, tying those two things back in, uh, you, you mentioned ayahuasca before, and I think uh, the only time I've had that experience, uh, you see people who have kind of very very hard experiences. Uh, yep. And um, I remember one of them being sort of regretful about having taken uh, the ayahuasca, and I can relate to that myself when I had when I had my one really really hard um, LSD trip. But uh, it's sort of like you you know. You, you have this kind of reg, like regret about like well that's not what I was after you know uh, you know that I just you, you kind of destroyed after that and um, John Lilly had a quote in the book where he said ecstasy is absolutely ruthless and highly indifferent it teaches us its lessons whether you like them or not <laughs> I thought that was really Christ. great I was like there there it is yeah, yeah. there it is and yeah. I think with, with those things uh, you know like you said it's it's what you do afterwards but sometimes um, you know, I know in my case with uh, the hard trip, it probably took me six months to realize like how important that had been. But uh, I just needed time to pass and and sort of you know to start making the corrections that would you know later make me realize that. If you had avoided doing the the real work after the trip, you know you would have been probably stuck in a worse place than you had been before the trip. You know? Yeah, right. I would have just chalked it up to like you know just a bad day. Right. You know. Yeah, that that Lily quote I like a lot, um, and it's it's referring to sort of the quote wisdom that tells me I am nothing. And there's uh, oh god, there's a philosopher, an Indian philosopher who I'm going to try and say their name, <laughs> um, Nisargadatta. There we go. That's my best best try. Nice. Um, the quote is love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between those two banks flows the river of my life. That's awesome. Are you eating Chinese food right now, Rod? <laughs> no, why? <laughs> it sounded like you were reading me a fortune cookie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Your lucky numbers are 12, <laughs> yeah. 19. What's, what's your new Chinese word? <laughs> it's go fuck yourself Kevin you got me <laughs> <All right. laughs> nice damn it I totally fell for that <laughs> well should we should we kind of wrap with um, the Cohen quote yeah I think that's a great quote 
There's also there's a the Yates quote earlier in the book, the world is full of magic, things patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. I love Ooh. that one. That was a really beautiful. Yeah. Read it as though you're reading a fortune right. cookie. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess relating that to the the whole uh, you know wisdom and integration experience after the the trip. There's a, a W. B. Yeats quote in the book that says, "The world is full of magic things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper." Um, I yeah. think that sums it up very nicely. Yeah, it's fantastic. So as we wrap up here, what's our um, general sense? Do we do we recommend the book? Is it a is it a yay or a nay? I, I highly recommend it, and I even think. Um, I would recommend this book to people before I would recommend even James Fadiman's uh, Oh yeah, the, yeah, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which I think is a great book if you're going to start dabbling and you want like For information. Sure. But right. this one, I feel like, gets at kind of uh, more core reasons the, to be involved, and in, and in not just about psychedelics, just about you know just right. everything that uh, is involved in sort of living a more engaged uh, life. Mm-hmm. And I think this this book hits on all of them, uh, and it's also it's just really easy to read. It's really fast. It's really entertaining, yeah. and I really hope uh, we can get one or both of the authors on at some point That'd and actually fantastic. hash uh, hash this out a little bit because there's there's a ton to talk about. I feel like we've done our best to kind of highlight sections, and I hope we <laughs> to the audience we haven't sounded like we're constantly quoting the book and we've read half the book <laughs> on the episodes. Right. But uh, it's it's really um, like I said, it's very easy to read it's very concise but at the same time it's so dense with uh things to talk about i mean we could do a, a show on every chapter of this book oh, completely we could have done a 10-part series easily um yeah i mean the the fatiman book i think is like the the how of it it's sort of like the you know like you said the instructions you know about um, the cookbook you know, yeah you know how, how you might go about exploring these realms whereas this book is more i think a little bit more about the why and it's the you know cultural context of um, how this fits into the bigger picture, and like you said, it's not it's not focused on psychedelics. Although, I find it pretty vindicating that you know psychedelics play such a big part in in this broader concept of how to uh, how to reach for a peak experience, how to um, you know how to go after a flow state and be more like optimally functioning. Um, you know that's what we're trying to do. In case that hasn't been clear, you know, forty something, almost fifty episodes into this podcast, we're not just a bunch of uh, I don't know, masturbating monkeys, um, you know, dropping acid for fun. Where I mean, there's certainly plenty of fun happening. Well, you have to drop the acid before you start masturbating. That's the <laughs> right. point. In that order, um, but you know, we're doing it. I think toward uh, broader goals, and uh, um, yeah, you know, I think it has a lot of appeal across uh, across every industry. And this book does a good is a good sort of cross section of um, of you know why why we're interested in this stuff. So I think we'll we'll end. Uh, shall I read the quote? Read it. So, Brad, oh, nice. are you are you yay or nay? Do you recommend the book, or is it safe no, to say no? no. <laughs> Not a big I, I'd fan. I just list, listen to these three episodes a bunch of times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Save your money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just kidding, authors. When you're reading this, we really want to talk to you. Yeah, we thank thank you of for of course all, go by the books. Thank, thank you for upping our minuscule probability of landing the two authors on the show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just, so yeah, I guess to to wrap things up. Uh, there's a point in the book where they quote the song Anthem by Leonard Cohen uh, in this particular stanza where he says, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. It's where the light gets in. Thank you very much to Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel for writing this book. It's a fantastic read. We highly recommend Stealing Fire. 
you can find out more also about their uh, Flow Genome Project at flowgenomeproject.com. That was Entheogen. Elevate the conversation. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. Please support Entheogen by making a donation on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $1. Pledge just $3 or more and get early access to new episodes, plus exclusive patron-only features. Head over to entheogenshow.com and click on support. And thanks again.